0: This is History for the Future, what we can learn from the TRC, with Pippa Green. Mary Ingleville Burton was born in Buenos Aires in Argentina in 1940. When she was about 12, her family moved to Brazil, where she went to a school for English-speaking children. She met her South African husband Geoffrey Burton in 1958 while on holiday in Austria and moved to South Africa soon after. The
1: terms of the commission were very clear that they were to deal with with killings, abductions, torture and then the fourth category of severe ill-treatment which allowed for some latitude.
0: She was, she writes in her book, The Black Sash, shaken by the cruelty of the Group Areas Act and the past laws that affected African people. She began running soup kitchens in poor black areas, but realised this was not enough to fight the far-reaching effects of apartheid. In 1965, she joined the Black Sash, a group of then-white women, which had begun a decade earlier as the Women's Defence of the Constitution League to oppose attempts by the National Party to exclude coloured people from the voters' role. Because they wore black sashes at their protests, a sign of mourning, the group soon became known as the Black Sash, Over the next 25 years, it became more vociferous in its protests against apartheid and forged alliances with many key anti-apartheid leaders. One was Imam Abdullah Haroon, who died in police detention in Cape Town in 1969, an event that both shocked and galvanized the black sash. The organization also began its famous advice offices around the country, often offering the only legal and moral support to the tens of thousands of African people who fell foul of the pernicious past laws. Burton became president of the Black Sash in the mid-1980s, a turbulent time of conflict and repression, and again in the mid-90s as democracy dawned. In 1995, then-President Nelson Mandela appointed her to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where she served on the committee investigating gross violations of human rights. I met her in her Cape Town home and asked her how she felt at the time about what the Truth Commission could do.
1: I had been part of some of those discussions that happened in the year or two before Mm -hmm. the Truth Commission was appointed. And so I'd done quite a lot of thinking about a Truth Commission. And I was born in Argentina, and so I have a particular interest in some of the Latin American experiences as well. Mm Uh, I saw the work of the Truth Commission as being partly to implement the agreement that there would be an amnesty, which I was initially extremely strongly opposed to, and um, and then partially to try and ensure that if that was uh, the essential aspect of that work, that it was done in a way which added some benefit to the process and wasn't simply a blanket cover-up.
0: Was there a chance of a blanket amnesty in the beginning? Was that a serious discussion? I think that in those last
1: hectic days before the interim constitution, there wasn't time to think through. I think Mm -hmm. there was great pressure from the members of the previous government and their supporters to grant amnesty. And I think they thought it would be a blanket amnesty. Whether the negotiators from the ANC side thought so, I don't know, but if you look at some of that, the words in that very strongly emotional and patriotic uh, post-amble to the Constitution about forgiveness and no recriminations and reconciliation and so on, I think perhaps even there there wasn't a sense that there was going to be a public exposure of each applicant. It was pressure from below, I think, that, that ensured that, that that was eventually uh, put into the legislation.
0: When you compare it to, you said, the Argentinian experience, which is quite interesting, but you were young when you left the country. Yes, it
1: was only afterwards, looking back at it afterwards. I mean, I'd finished school when I left the country, and so I lived through some of the years of, of uh, Peron's removal from government and so on, but not the worst years of the, of the dirty war. The thing about the, the Argentine experience was that the, the newly elected government was very fragile and very much at the mercy of the military dictatorship still. And any kind of um, attempt to pin blame on individual people, I think would have resulted in another military coup. I was always so grateful that that in South Africa we had the the stability of the successful election behind us and of uh, President Mandela's stature, that really the. Apart from a few real extremists, there was no real th- serious threat of a right-wing coup after um, the truth commission had been appointed. You know, after the deal had been done in a way about amnesty. I think that South Africa was in a stronger position to to build the kind of TRC that has had so much admiration all around the world, even if it doesn't have very much respect within South Africa.
0: What do you think, looking back, were its greatest strengths? What did it achieve that you are most proud of? Two things, I think, especially.
1: One of them is the fact that it is impossible to deny many of the secrets of our past. They're not all out, of course, but the kind of people who would never have believed or admitted um, that the state had been responsible for really gross abuses of human rights um, find it impossible now to deny that so I think that's a very big step forward because it did mean that at least by the time of the end of the Truth Commission I think maybe memories have faded a bit now, but at that time really I think most decent people in South Africa were, were quite ashamed of what had happened and felt a, a kind of sense of having of being tainted almost by having voted in and supported a government that had been responsible for those things um, and the other thing that I think uh, that I feel very proud of is actually the final report, although it's very, very patchy, and I don't think there are very many people who have read all seven volumes—not even the commissioners—but um, it is a fantastic record for for future historians to work on. And I'm particularly proud of the volume that lists all the people who were found to have been victims of abuses, because I don't think any other Truth Commission had done that then, and I'm not sure that anybody has had the capacity to do it now.
0: Volume 5 of the Truth Commission report lists the names in small type of all the victims of gross human rights violations during the apartheid era. The list runs for 81 pages, starting with Tabo Simon Aaron and ending with Mpantessa William Zweni, Gross human rights violations were defined and abbreviated as CATS, killings, abductions, torture and severe ill-treatment. Each one is carefully categorised. For instance, killings can involve being beaten to death, burned to death, killed by poison, drugs or chemicals, killed by drowning, killed by electrocution, executed or killed in an explosion. The list doesn't end there. There's killed by exposure to extreme heat or cold or forced labour, necklacing, having a petrol doused tyre placed over your neck and set alight, petrol bombed or stoned to death. Just this list gives a glimpse of some of the horrors that accompanied apartheid. But today, just 20 years after the first human rights violations hearing in East London, many people, she says, are either ignorant or would prefer to forget this unhappy legacy. But two decades ago, what pathways did the Truth Commission open up for the country?
1: I think that the way that the, the Truth Commission organized its public hearings um, had a very big impact on, on the public, um, both those who attended and the people who watched summaries of it on, on television and, and heard it pretty well in full on radio. The radio was fantastic. covered all of those public hearings so well. And since then, there, people have talked about what can we do even now to, to talk about the poverty and inequality, for example. How do we raise the, the level of concern about those issues? And those speak outs or whatever they get called, I think have the capacity to do that. And there were a couple of speak-outs on poverty organised by the churches after the end of the Truth Commission, but nothing really followed up from there. And I think that, that impact... on on the whole country, was very powerful. Now, how can we learn from that? You know, why didn't we use that more?
0: It's hard to keep in memory, she says. The report is difficult to access, and the film footage of the hearings, most of which is owned by the SABC, is expensive to buy, particularly for NGOs. One criticism of the TRC is that it did not or could not investigate the broader structural effects of apartheid. Burton says it would have been impossible to operate with such a broad mandate.
1: What I had envisaged, after the new government was installed and the, and the, um, the Chapter 9 institutions were set up and so on, I thought that there would be an array of, of investigations into all of those issues. I thought the Land Commission would deal with the land issue. Uh, I thought there would be a huge emphasis on poverty and how... and, and a special institution set up to deal with that. Um, the education was already fell within the, the education department. And I envisaged this sort of raft of work going forward, of which the Truth Commission would be only one or five or six initiatives to deal with the inherited injustices of the past. And it was a great frustration and a great disappointment to find that it, it didn't.
0: It may have been possible for the Human Rights Commission to take up some of the issues of the past, she says, but generally it focused on the present, leaving many victims of past violations not covered by the Truth Commission with no real recourse.
1: There was a lot of people who came to us, for example, with businesses that had been destroyed by arson or by violent conflict and so on. Things that fell outside of the TRC mandate, but, but obviously made those people victims of what had happened. And there just seemed to be nowhere to take those cases. And people were angry and justifiably angry because they had a complaint, but there was nowhere that they could take it to. But the terms of the commission were very clear uh, that they were to deal with, with killings, abductions, torture, and then the fourth category of severe ill treatment, which allowed for some latitude, but not completely wide latitude. That, I think, is the greatest thing that people resent now about the Truth Commission.
0: The sectoral hearings on the media, the legal profession and the military, among others, to some extent, filled the role of examining the broader aspects of apartheid. And commissioners were aware of the need to do this because they felt it was important to understand the context in which these abuses could take place. But 20 years on, in the era of democracy, there are major challenges that still face the country.
1: I think the greatest problem that we face is not only poverty, but the gross inequality and the lack of lack of concern on the part of those who are privileged to address that issue. And I think people feel a bit paralysed. They don't quite know what to do, but still. So there's a lack of, of leadership and and of showing what could be done and perhaps of making things happen to change that situation. Because we have been saying, all of us, I think, on the Truth Commission, that without Addressing that, there's no possibility of reconciliation. However much one might try and forgive specific instances or at least understand them, actual national reconciliation doesn't happen when there is such a huge gulf between the privileged and the disadvantaged. The fact that the privileged... Uh, Group is slightly different. doesn't make any difference to the people who are are poor. Not Mm. only poor, but who lack opportunities and ability to do anything about it because of the the past, but also because of the 20 years of lack of of adequate education and still skills training.
0: I ask if she is surprised by a new generation, some of whom have labelled the TRC as a failure or worse, a sellout.
1: It doesn't surprise me because of the little that the Truth Commission has talked about. So young people just don't know. So I think there is a need to clarify. And I, maybe this, this two-decade anniversary will give us an opportunity to do some clarification of what, what the mandate was and what could have been expected of the Truth Commission. But I think it's because there are so few avenues for that anger to go into, that, that here is something that looks as if it might have made life better and, and hasn't.
0: Burton recalls a recent meeting where two young women from the Roads Must Four campaign whom she describes as eloquent and interested, spoke of how they felt disadvantaged not knowing enough about the past, particularly the role of the TRC.
1: They were questioning. They weren't saying that the Truth Commission had, was at fault. They were trying to understand. And, and they said things like, nobody tells us, nobody teaches
0: us. It's not taught so in
1: schools. It's actually beginning to be taught in schools. So in, for the last, I think it may be five years it's been on the curriculum... Um, and quite often, during August, I get asked to talk to girls' schools, which I'm always delighted to do, because for many years it was only foreign students who were interested in the Truth mm-hmm. Commission. And now, because they have to write about it, and have to do projects, and have to pass exams, um, they're interested. But they are interested. Uh, I find that very heartening. There's some very, very fine young women in, in our school-leaving grades saying, what do we do? And... The worst thing that we encounter is apathy and our parents don't want to know. And they tell us to get a good education so we can get out. And it's very depressing, but they are not saying that's what we want to do. They're saying we want to do something.
0: People have talked about an economic cadessa or something more. Do you think that there's place or relevance for another kind of truth commission which looks into some of the key issues of the day that you mentioned, like causes and possible solutions to poverty and inequality? Or is it just a matter of government doing the right thing?
1: The other thing that concerns me greatly is the lack of capacity in the government to do the right thing. I think, you know, we get very angry and disappointed at, at some of the lack of will, but sometimes I think that really the problems look so enormous that people get down to the little bit of work that they are doing and don't have the the energy and the ability to look at the bigger picture and and try I suppose the national development plan is the best thing we have had so far but I don't see where it's going at the moment you know even if one one found things weaknesses in it at least it was a plan well, I suppose I should say it is a plan <laughs> but But I think the ability to implement, and I think that's partly the cause of a lot of the corruption and inefficiency, that people just give up. They're not actually coping, and so they opt out and look after themselves because they can't change the system. I I can actually understand how that happens to people if you're in a job that you can't manage. So I think one of the things we have to do is equip people who are in the delivery stream to do their jobs better. And how we do that, I'm not quite sure, but it would something, certainly be something to be looked at in, in public, in a, in a CODESA-type initiative.
0: She says many small groups, including in the churches, are thinking about how to approach what she calls the woundedness and healing of individuals. And there are people looking at how to improve service delivery.
1: How are we going to coalesce all of those little streams into something that becomes significant like CODESA? and draws in all of those people who approach the subject from different perspectives.
0: Who can lead that kind of initiative, I ask her?
1: Exactly the question. Some of the groups that I'm involved just in talking about it, are all. we're all looking at one another and saying, we're too old, we're not the right people to be mm-hmm. doing this. And yet, where are the young voices who are going to lead this initiative if it can happen? So maybe the job at the moment is just to keep floating the ideas and seeing if mm-hmm. there are enough people who get grabbed by it. There are young people who are working in, in non-profit organisations like um, the anti-corruption people and the right to know people and all of that. How do we bring everybody to the point of saying this is something we have to do first? And while we all deal with all those other issues, but this is the one that is the most pressing.
0: Perhaps, I suggest, we haven't had the real revolution yet.
1: I think that it's very likely that there could be a very angry revolution. But at the moment, there's not even somebody leading it.
0: (laughs) One of the strengths of the Truth Commission, she says, was in the leadership of Archbishop Desmond Tutu.
1: He is a very remarkable man. And people often ask me, what impact did he have on the Truth Commission? Well, I think the truth is that if if he had not been the chairperson, it would have been quite a different commission in many ways. Um, Just in the way it functioned and in his concern for each individual and making it work well in that just... Being in the offices, being accessible to people, people loved him very much. you know people wanted to be near him there There was a kind of spirit of happiness in in the midst of of really tough stuff when he was in town, when he was in his office, when you knew he was there, you know people wanted to see him come into the tea room and get a hug from him and that sort of thing. In meetings, he was very archbishoply. (laughs) And that was not always easy for people who were people of different faiths or of no faith. And sometimes there were plenty of brave people on the commission who who said, you can't do that. You can't hold us to uh, a religious way of working. But nevertheless, um, he got everybody, all the commissioners, whoever they were, to to open meetings with prayer or... (laughs) And... um, and, as he used to do in in church synods, uh, when there was uh, differences of opinion, he would say, "Well, let's just sort of pray about it or think about it." And you know, you'd wait a little while, and then, sure enough, he would decide that the solution had come to him, and <laughs> there you were. And it was very difficult to stand up against it when that had happened.
0: <laughs> but one of its weaknesses was that it came to an end in an unstructured way. Everyone was exhausted, there was pressure to get the report out, and there were two major legal challenges, one from F.W. de Klerk and the other from the ANC to deal with. There was one subsequent meeting convened by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who chaired the commission, intended for the commissioners to reflect and air their feelings.
1: And I can remember saying to him, I am so angry with all the things that we did wrong. I'm still so angry. (laughs) I don't think he liked it very much. And I think there was that feeling of of disappointment uh, that we had not been able to do better. And quite often when we talk to other countries that are planning something similar, one of the bits of advice that most people give is put in a structure to carry the work forward. And there was a, a TRC desk in the Justice Department for a while, but it didn't have it was, it was just tying up loose ends, really. It didn't have a responsibility for working on reconciliation issues or anything like that. It was coping with people who hadn't got through the reparations process and you know that kind of thing, and, and mistakes and legal challenges and all those things that had to be finalized. But in Sierra Leone, I think it was, they, the, their Human Rights Commission was charged with the responsibility of carrying forward the reconciliation work. And I think that would, be, would have been a better option.
0: Among the most difficult aspects at the end of the TRC were the legal challenges that came, particularly from the ANC.
1: It was taxing and it also caused stress within the Commission because obviously there were people who not only were, had been sympathetic to the ANC, even if they had tried to remove that from the TRC work, but who of course now were looking to their futures. Uh, within the ANC, so it was difficult for people to take strong stands either either side, either way.
0: She says that the conflict between the ANC and the apartheid government was not even-handed, but says it was important for the TRC to be even-handed.
1: What astonished me really was that the ANC had uh, conceded itself that it had... Uh, Committed that its people had committed uh, gross violations of human rights. They had their own commissions of investigation, and they they submitted those to the Truth Commission, and they were very open at the beginning. What I think happened was, as the years of the TRC dragged on, and the ANC by then was much more formally in government and moving in international circles and so on, that they were anxious that their reputation was going to be besmirched by the findings of the TRC, and I think it was a tactical mistake on their part. I think it would have been better if they had said, we did carry out our own commissions of inquiry. And all of that, the arguments that they put forward, that they were in exile, that they were in conflict, that there was no possibility of having legal investigations, they had no police, they had no detectives. I think all of that completely understandable. And all they needed to say was that but to acknowledge it and to take responsibility.
0: It put the ANC in a weak position, she believes, and it missed an opportunity, as did F.W. de Klerk.
1: I remember when de Klerk made his submission to to the TRC and I wasn't in the hearing and I was walking down a corridor and I heard his voice talking about the great pain that apartheid had caused and the regret that there was for that pain and suffering and so on. And I thought, at last, this is an absolute breakthrough, and it's going to make a huge difference to the Truth Commission to have him say those things. And then the Archbishop pushed him to take acknowledge responsibility for that, and he backed off. And I think that was also a lost opportunity. If he had stepped forward and said, he could have continued to say he didn't know. Maybe he managed not to know. But he should have said, I was the president. It was my responsibility, and I should have done something about it, and I regret it. It's not so difficult to say that. That's what, how it seemed to me. And I think it was an opportunity, Miss. If he had, many more people from within the establishment would have come forward to testify, and the ANC would have also felt itself in the, in the position that it could also acknowledge that there were things which maybe the leadership didn't do or sanction, but which were committed by their followers.
0: In spite of all this, the South African Truth Commission is held up as an example in the rest of the world. Its public hearings, its requirements for full disclosure for amnesty, are among the elements that countries around the world who have come out of conflict have tried to emulate. Burton, though, wishes the TRC could have done more. Although there was a multi-volume report and hundreds of recommendations to government, she feels the TRC could have done more to report back to the people of South Africa. We didn't treat
1: the people who came to testify as well as we should have done. That was why I was angry with the Truth Commission, myself included. There wasn't time. Okay, one can say there wasn't time, but still. People came forward to make statements, those 20 plus thousand people. There was that low-level corroboration to check into their stories. We often were not able to find out who the perpetrators were or anything. All we had were able to do often was find just enough corroboration to confirm that they had in fact suffered a violation. Nobody went back to them and said, we've checked, we're sorry, we can't find an individual, the whole country owes you an apology, that sort of thing. You know? wouldn't it have been so hard to have a letter or, or a team of people who, who went around doing that. And so we just dumped them, quite honestly, until... Later, when it came to be time to, to send them letters saying you have been found to be a victim and you are now eligible for reparations and this is the form you must fill in. But that kind of human response to the stories they told us, I mean, they are the ones who made the Truth Commission work. If they hadn't come forward, there would have been no Truth Commission. It would have been extremely embarrassing. So they, you know, they suffered in the first instance, then they put themselves out at great personal cost in many cases, talking about, sometimes talking about things they had never talked about before. And we talked such a lot about healing and pouring balm on wounds and so on. And honestly, we didn't do a very good job of that. And I feel a great sense of responsibility about that. I think we raised expectations that we could not fulfill.
0: Burton acknowledges the one ongoing aspect of work of the TRC undertaken by a small unit in the National Prosecuting Authority, headed by Madeleine Fullard. It is still tracking missing people buried in unmarked graves to identify their remains and return them to the families. Fullard, says Burton, is a heroine.
1: But, I mean, it should have had the full weight of the commission behind it, and it should apply not only to the people who are in unmarked graves, but to the people who had other things happen to them. You know, so so somebody like Eugene de Kock sits in jail for a long time, but what about all the other people, and all the other places that we may not even know about?
0: That was Mary Burton interviewed in Cape Town on the 19th of August 2015. I'm Pippa Green in Cape Town, produced by Jean-Michel. Thanks to the Cape Town Youth Choir for the use of their musical performance of Senzene now. You've just listened to History for the Future, what we can learn from the TRC. Keep listening for more insights into the state of reconciliation in South Africa then and now.